This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com slash ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. Hey, this is Embry Rucker, and this is Light Source. And welcome to episode 59 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, the website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. Now on today's episode, we are going to have a wonderful interview with Embry Rucker. And if you want to follow along on the website, it's www.embry.com. R-U-C-K-E-R.com. And he is a commercial photographer based out of the West Coast and uh, does a lot of outdoor shooting. He's really kind of a location guy. And when you go right into his website, there's a, a wonderful photo of a woman running through bamboo, kind of like in a jogging outfit. And a lot of his photos uh, kind of fall along that same line. A lot of uh, snowboarders and mountain bikers and the cool, fun stuff that I want to be out actually doing uh, right. as well as taking photos of it. So he shares with us a lot of his location lighting techniques. So that'll be coming up in a little bit. But as far as that, uh, let's see, what do we have going on that we've collected links to talk about tonight? We probably have too much to talk about, so we'll try to keep it kind of brief. But there's just a lot going on right now. Uh, Nikon USA redesigned their website, and they've added a blog. Did they really? How about that? And and no, I haven't been reading it. What were you doing on Nikon's website? Hey, you just Don't you worry about that, all right? <laughs> Research for your next camera, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. You know, speaking of Nikon, you had sent me a link to a new piece of software by Nick Software, which I looked at the video and it's really pretty exciting software. They have some really neat interface tools for color correction and stuff like that. But I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's kind of what Nikon Capture NX had built in as well. And they worked with Nick Software pretty closely. It looks real similar, but it's really nice looking software, independent and, of Nikon. And it is a plugin for Adobe Photoshop and Photoshop Elements. So if you want some of that functionality that Bill was talking about with Capture NX, then you can kind of input that into Photoshop if that's your software of choice, I guess, or um, if you're a Canon guy. I guess I guess Capture NX does work with Canon files too, doesn't it? Um, I believe so. One of the really neat things about the software is you can click in like an, a region on the photo that's a certain color and just with your mouse, just slide it up and down and it adjusts the color. It's very interactive and it's, it's very smooth. You don't have to worry about rough edges and selections and stuff like that masking very much at all. It's pretty smart stuff. Oh, pretty cool. It sounds a lot like the C the black and white filter in CS3. Yes. You know what? That's exactly what it reminds me of, too. Very similar. Cool. So if you're familiar with that, then you'll have an idea of what we're talking about. Good times. Well, while we're still in the software kick, um, we talked about Joe McNally's book, The Moment It Clicks, which I still haven't ordered. I still need to do that. But when it was I do, on back order, dude. Well, good. I'm glad I didn't bother to go See? and look for it. It's back in stock, so you can go ahead and order it now. Oh, good. So... So there's that, but there's also a new book from Matt Kloskowski of NAP or Photoshop TV fame. It is called The Layers, The Complete Guide to Adobe Photoshop's Most Powerful Feature. And kind of on the heels of our interview with Dave Hill, and he was talking about he uses a lot of layers in his images. That might be a good book to look up if you'd like that photo technique. 
Well, Matt's certainly really good at explaining Photoshop and the ins and outs of it. So I'm sure it's well written. And I think you're right. It'd be a good grab. Besides that, the cover just looks really cool. No doubt. (laughs) It's actually a nice stock photo on the cover. Really? Oh, that's cool. There is one more software thing that I saw this week. Actually, two more software things real quick, though. Because I know we talk a lot about online web-based image editors, which we also kind of... I do. I can't help it. I'm a web kind of guy. But (laughs) one more thing, and then we won't talk about it for a little while. But (laughs) But Picnic, the online image editor this week, announced that all their pro features are now free. And they're going to be kind of ad supported instead of before you had to, you could still buy a subscription like you could before to get rid of ads. But in this case, there's actually an awful lot that you can do with these editors. I'm kind of keeping my eye on these because not that I would ever give up Photoshop, but for example, you can do masking and some other pretty advanced stuff right inside of the the website. So who knows? Just something to kind of throw out there. Oh, yeah, that was really neat. Yeah. <laughs> You sound so excited. Oh, I, just, I, I can fake enthusiasm. I do believe. <laughs> the other software that I also watched a couple of videos about this week was Aperture 2, Apple's new release. I Apple? Know. Yeah, it's a, yes, Apple. We, we are like polar opposite worlds <laughs> of stuff, aren't we? You're, well, you're Nikon and Apple. I'm Canon and PC. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it's a really nice piece of software. I still think the minimum requirements are, are pretty steep. If you don't have a really powerful Mac, it's probably going to be a kind of an issue for you. But they did do some really nice new stuff with the interface and tethering is very much improved and some things like that. So it's worth if you are an Apple person or you want to check out Aperture, it's probably a good time to do it. Kind of in silly news, I was on the photoshopnews.com and I found, I actually found a lot of instances of photoshopping in the news while I was looking around here tonight. Did you see the one in China that there was a an ad for their bullet train? It was like an award-winning photo, but they later found out that the photographer had photoshopped in the herd of antelope into the foreground. Oh no. So they, they got nicked for that pretty hard. And, um, uh, there was another instant. There's been like a bunch of instances of people that are publishing, which is a big no, no in photojournalism, but are publishing edited photos that where they, the content has been changed, but kind of onto the silly story is somebody has made a photo of Hollywood's perfect woman. And that's perfect woman in quotes. You just can't see my fingers making them. Somebody took a cross between Angelina Jolie, Chalice Theron, and Carmen Electra. Nice. And they made an ugly woman. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm look, I looked at the photo. I'm like, oh, Hollywood's perfect woman. Let me look at this. And I click on it, and I'm like, oh, uh, she's not perfect at all. Yeah, well, sometimes it's not good to mix. I mean, it's one thing to mix faces inside of a group photo or something, because I do that now and then. But mixing facial features between people really quickly gets weird. It's kind of funny if you take all of the perfect features, I guess, of all of these characters, like Shalise Theron's eyes, Angelina Jolie's lips, Carmen Electra's hair and face shape, and I guess the body shape is what they had posed, you know, took for the shot. I guess too much of a good thing is a bad thing sometimes. Could be, man. Could be. There's <laughs> there's a reason we all have little imperfections, right? I don't have any imperfections. I don't know what you're well, talking about. Not you, <laughs> but some people. And I get. <laughs> You know, the Flickr group has been pretty active this week. It has. So, it's hard to stay up on top of it. I know. It's fun to watch, though. If you have questions, and I've been referring a lot of people to the Flickr group because a lot of people are able to answer questions before I can even get in there or answer an email. Uh, the Flickr group at flickr.com slash groups slash light source is a great place to go and check out some conversation right now. There's a bunch of people talking about beauty dishes and how to use them. 
What kind of studio light should I buy? I have $500, you know, so there's a lot of really good threads in there. One of the ones that we kind of talked about a little bit last week on the last show, and that's assignments. And I just want to let everybody know that we are working on a couple of really cool concepts for assignments. And we're working with Ami Siano, the, the Flickr user that started that group. And we're going to be coming out with some announcements in the Flickr group soon about how that'll work. So stay tuned. Yeah, so get your batteries charged up and, and ready to start shooting because uh, we're going to have some, some announcement coming soon to put you guys to work. Good times. Before we get into the interview, did you want to talk about the Strobus video at all that we that you had sent me the link to? I did see a pretty cool video, and yeah, I guess it's worth talking about. We, we've been kicking around ideas for a while of things that we can do in the studio to kind of add some texture and stuff, and that video came up, and I thought you'd like that. It's Joe Daler and Joe Stern, the Joes. <laughs> The two Joes. Yeah, they did a good job. They they videotaped the whole process as they built a pretty cool backdrop out of, I don't know, what would you call it? Corrugated roofing material? It, that's what they called it. It's a corrugated roofing material. It's kind of, it looks like scallops or waves when you, when you look at it from the side. It's kind of like that plexiglass material that I guess people put it along fences or you can use them for roofing panels. I typically see them on like sheds or something like that. It's not like a very heavy material. I can't imagine somebody roofing a house with it. Right. It's probably more for like sheds and stuff like that, wood piles, but they did a good job. They spray painted them and hung them and they have a bunch of sample images inside of their video and it's worth checking out. The one thing I really liked about them is they, depending on how they lit them, they got some pretty cool industrial looks for them. Um, They were using them with lacrosse and soccer players um, and a fog machine, which is the next thing too on my list for the studio. Got to get a fog machine and a fan. There you go. Um, but they use that, and they got some really cool vertical patterns with these. So uh, it's kind of funny that you sent this to me today because I'm already working on some designs for what I want to do for for the studio for uh, some some phony walls. So it's kind of good timing, Bill. All right, man. Well, hopefully some other people will find it interesting as well. I'll put links in the show notes. Well, before we battle on too much, check out our sponsors at squarespace.com. You can get website hosting. You can check that out at photographers.squarespace.com slash LS. And you can sign up and give it a try for 30 days and use our promo code LS1 to get a discount on your order. Yeah, actually, I just sent a couple of photographer friends to that website and they signed up this past week. And I got a really cool email from one of them saying that they love it. Prior to checking out Squarespace, they were using basically the tools that come with a GoDaddy hosting account because a Squarespace account costs just about the same as you would pay for that. Uh, So she's totally switching and she's pretty excited about it. Cool. Yeah. And while we're at it, we have a special feature on this episode. We have created a special gallery for Embry Rucker's photographs that will be hosted at our LightSource Squarespace website. And you can get to that by going to lightsource.squarespace.com. You want to see some of Embry's work in a gallery and also kind of see what the software is like at Squarespace, this is a great way to do it. So we'll put links to the show notes on the website for that as well. So enjoy. And on this edition of The Light Source, we have with us this evening Embry Rucker. If you want to follow along with his work, you can check it out at embryrucker.com. It's E-M-B-R-Y-R-U-C-K-E-R.com. And Embry is a portrait commercial photographer, does a lot of portrait work for a lot of celebrities that I recognize as I'm looking through here. And uh, some really amazing work. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show with us. Thanks much. How did you get into doing photography and specifically this genre of photography? Well, 
originally, uh, photography for me started when I was in college. I'd done it a bit growing up, dabbling in it, but never really taking classes and knowing what I was doing, just kind of uh, ruining film along the way. And uh, I was really into travel and used to travel a bunch with my family. And so I kind of got into it initially to become like a, a travel photographer, travel writer. Uh, I studied writing and all that. Uh, I got a degree in English Lit and creative writing. And while I was doing that, I started studying photography to kind of have those photos accompany my travel articles and stories. So I started learning the, the ropes and the basics, and I was kind of uh, blown away and just excited about how you could kind of create a photo and have it, like, preconceive it and create it and have it look the way you wanted to, you know, and I was just always intrigued by all the bells and whistles, you know, and you could get something like a, a star streak or a waterfall blur or something like that, and you could actually figure out how that's done, and you know, I always thought those were amazing photos growing up, looking, looking through all travel magazines and books and stuff, so that's what initially got me into it, and at the same time, I was going to school, I went to the University of Wyoming and the University of Montana and studying writing, but I was snowboarding a lot, and I was mountain biking and rock climbing and hanging out outside a bunch, and so traveling and an adventurous lifestyle kind of thing, and I started shooting a bunch of uh, snowboard photography just of my friends as I was kind of learning uh, in photography world. I was learning how to figure stuff out, get around the mountain with all my gear, and uh, having a good time just shooting my friends, and as I was developing and growing as a photographer, they were also developing and growing as professional snowboarders, so they had People that were uh, looking, you know, their sponsors were looking for photos of them. Magazines were looking for photos of them for uh, interviews and whatnot. So we grew together. Uh, that was, at that time, I was living out in Bend, Oregon. And uh, we kind of traveled around, a bunch of us doing that for years, and uh, got to meet more people and go on more exciting trips. And out of that, you know, I kind of fed my desire to travel and shoot travel photography. And uh, the life comes along with that uh, subculture, you know, and, and out of that came, obviously, portraits of just kind of cool, interesting people. Now, that sounds like a pretty tricky environment for photography. Um, what's it like to be constantly photographing things that are really moving? Well, as you know, at the time, I mean, it was, as I was learning, you know, there, there's a couple hard, fast rules to it. You know, you shoot a fast enough shutter speed to freeze the action. And in, in those action sports that are kind of specialized niche sports, it's like they're very cool and they're very, they have their own set of rules. So it's like, if you're a snowboarder, you know how to shoot snowboarding or what snowboard jump looks good. Like you, you need to have the lip and the landing in the shot, just like in a, a skateboard shot, you know, in a surf shot, you want to see the size of the wave, that type stuff. So they all have their own little uh, weird things that go about with it. But I think being in tune with those subcultures kind of helps you understand uh, what you need to do to get the shot right. and what kind of rules you can break too. Well, now, technically speaking, do you find yourself at least when in that part of your career, did you use a lot of different lighting equipment or just rely on the no, sun? No, not and at all. That was uh, really basic. We had to film cameras way back then, and uh, the biggest trick of the trade was a fast motor drive and you know being able to capture the action and shoot something in an interesting way. And we it evolved into, as snowboarders started doing a little bit more urban riding, we would borrow our styles from the skateboard industry, just like the snowboarders were borrowing their urban, you know, rail sliding and uh, stuff like jibs and stuff like that in cities. So, you know, where the, uh, the environment lends itself to it, we would augment with ashes and strobes and stuff like that. And I think nowadays the, the kids doing snowboard and skate photography are just amazing with the lighting. Like they're, they're carrying out tons of gear and setting it up and 
five minutes getting a shot and taking it all down and get out before they get kicked out by the police. So right. um, it's a uh, whole new, whole new deal right now. You know, it's uh, it's a little bit more advanced, and they know they're getting their shot uh, a lot quicker. Well, one more follow-up question related to photographing things in the snow. I know that's kind of a tricky environment to begin with, with hard shadows and stuff. Did you do anything to control that light when you could? or how did Well, what you find in the snow is, you know, like we were obviously shooting primarily when it's bright and sunny and looks pretty. The snow acts as a giant reflector, so it's filling in tons of shadows. So it's, it might be like blazing hot sun, but there's never any real dark shadows on the subject. You know, if they're flying in the air over over a jump, you've just got a gigantic uh, reflector under them, oh, and you cool. get really good good color and uh, good fill light off of the snow. And it's you know it's a good place to kind of shoot that amazing light that you don't really see everywhere. Okay. Well, fast forwarding a little bit, has your career changed? Since the days of shooting sports and snowboarding and stuff, yeah, a little bit. It's, um, <laughs> you know, that, that was only you know maybe six years ago or something when I used to do that. I, I, I did that. And I got my travel bug and I fulfilled that need and I learned a lot. And uh, you know, I got a little older and wanted to slow it down a little bit and not be waiting on weather. And so I took the time to hone my craft and kind of focus on what I was into. And that was really portraits and lifestyle and being able to dictate what I was shooting and control the environment where it wasn't necessarily weather dependent or environment dependent and being able to just show up to a location or a spot and kind of make something cool happen wherever it is and let the subject or the location or environment tell you how it should be shot. So yeah, it's a little bit different now. I'm looking at a lot of your recent work here on the website and it seems like you're doing a little bit more portrait oriented instead of the action type stuff or you're still doing the action stuff? Yeah. I don't really do the action photography anymore, and I haven't for probably uh, five years or so. I actually dabble in it a little bit. I'll shoot some mountain biking photos here or there because it gives me a good excuse to find a a new trail or something. But um, I still do a lot of advertising commercial work for clients that I know through the action sports, whether it's uh, Nixon watches shooting their surfers and skaters or through Quicksilver, shooting their snowboarders and surfers and stuff like that. Or O'Neill is another action sports brand. I shoot a lot of their women's fashion stuff. So a lot of my clients are action sports brands, technically. I just am shooting more of the commercial advertising stuff and not the actual guy in the sky. Similar clientele, and I work with some of the same people in that facet, but uh, not out in the field really capturing action that much anymore. Gotcha. Uh, actually, while we're talking about some of your current work, in your, on your website, if you go to the portfolios and current gallery, one of the first shots is a shot of a woman for O'Neill, actually. It's, it's in Hawaii, and she has a great expression on her face. What's it like on, a, on set with you? Are, are you one of those guys that likes to have a lot of fun? And I mean, what sorts of things do you do to try and bring the emotion out of people? Yeah, that, that was a shoot down in uh, Oahu for uh, O'Neill, and that was a really organic shoot where we were just cruising around and we'd grab locations, run and gun style on the side of the road. We had our stylists and our hair and makeup and distance, and we had way more gear than we needed because it's like so gorgeous there that you just jump out of the car. And we were, I think it was, <laughs> a, you know, a, a roadside attraction. Like there was 50 uh, yellow tour buses on the other side of the street, like looking at the beach. And we turned around and we're like, oh my God, look at those great mountains. Let's go over there. So it was really like, we had a huge crew of people, but it was just the model, Tamara, and myself that went over there. And, you know, everyone's getting ready for another shot or something. I was like, all right, let's go check this out over here. We run over, jump over a little uh, rock wall, 
and uh, got a series of, you know, maybe 20 pictures or so. And she kind of went through the motions, and I think she came up with that scream herself. You know, it was uh, a lot of my style in directing is kind of natural and organic in that I shoot a lot of real people, and I shoot a lot of kind of athletes and people that are well-known, and I'm shooting them because they are who they are. And I try not to tell them to do anything that wouldn't be representative of who they are. So even when I'm, you know, directing models, I like to let them do something that feels comfortable because I think it really can ruin a photo when it looks forced or you can tell the director or photographer is really telling somebody what to do to fulfill their vision and it doesn't really doesn't really jive with the environment or the photo in the end. Uh, certainly. I see a lot of shots you have up here of like Sean White and a bunch of the different galleries and every one mm-hmm. of the shots looks exactly like I picture him being from like the interviews I've seen him with. Yeah, he he's a cool kid. He, you know, I started shooting him when he was 13, and I, he just had his 21st birthday, and he was like this this little phenomenal kid in a big bowling ball helmet that was, you know, <laughs> going cra- crazy on a snowboard, and now he's wrecking Lamborghinis in his gated neighborhood and stuff down the street, and, <laughs> you know, but he's the same kid. He's very down-to-earth, and he's cool and um, approachable, and, you know, all those people are, and that's one of those things. It's like everybody kind of can be a celebrity in their own little subculture but when you uh, pan back and look at the world and as a whole well, just who we are and everybody kind of think you idolize like sports fans or whatever sports uh, icons are all just uh, just real people i think a lot of that comes through in the way that you're capturing these guys since you're not forcing them to, to pose or play some kind of role that they're not it's really coming through in your images which makes them really powerful well, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like it probably comes from uh, you know having shot those athletes that are in such. I mean, they're just so picky about their image and like those cool guy sports, you know. And it's skateboarding and surfing and snowboarding. They don't want to be the jocks necessarily. They don't want to be construed as something that they're not. And you know, they get well known for their skills on a board or a mountain bike or a road bike or throwing a ball or whatever it is. And you kind of have to do them justice by letting them be who they are. That's cool. Uh, you mentioned these natural shoots driving around kind of a uh, gorilla style. What's that like to prepare for in terms of equipment and scouting? What are you looking for when you're out there? I guess would be the first question I have. You know, I'm uh, I'm really interested in locations and the environment. And I think that's a, a really big part of what gets me excited to shoot. So I like to go scouting as much as I can. Like, for example, that Hawaii shoot we did just one day driving this road we knew we were going to be close to. And I like to get my own eyes on the location before we go because I can pick out, you know, five spots from standing still that I think would be great for a shot, whether it's like a tunnel of trees or it's a cool mountain line or a, a winding road in the background. But I just love landscapes and I love the natural environment or or even, you know, like a urban environment. Sometimes we're in cities shooting and there's a great street or a great little alley or there's, you know, an interior that's got a great window or a door shape or something like that that just hits me and I feel like that's the spot. When we're driving around, it's not necessarily like I see something out of the car window, but we may stop and while we're stopped, I go, oh yeah, we could shoot here. Oh, and I go around a corner and like we could shoot here too. So it's kind of uh, that sense of discovery and finding something new is what's really fun about that gorilla or run and gun style. I tend to do quite a bit. And equipment wise for that, obviously uh, as natural light as possible is best. But we've been uh, traveling with you know a ton of gear that we you know don't use all the time because it's like ah, it looks great natural, or maybe we'll hit it with a a little pop of fill or uh, scrim some sun out of it or something like that. 
right. just keep it looking kind of natural. And that, to me, I, I shoot really fast, and I think I get a lot in a small amount of time, and I know I've got it, and we can move on. And if I was going to set up you know, three lights to kind of replicate the gorgeous natural light I had, I'd only get one shot as opposed to getting three different locations in the same amount of time. That makes a lot of sense. So if you were going to take the least amount of gear, are there things that you always take with you make sure that you have, you know, like a favorite reflector or something like that, that really well, you know, what? I've been, uh, we've been doing some real lean and mean shoots lately. And we did like a 10 day trip to seven or eight different cities for uh, men's health. And we were shooting all these different trainers and gyms and stuff in all these different parts of the country. And so we're flying every couple of days. We have 7B with us, Profoto 7B and the Octobank, but we brought a couple, you know, Canon 580 flashes and all the light stands and I built snoots out of uh, Cinefoil and we just pocket wizard it all together and we have some pop-out reflectors for uh, lean and mean. I have my assistant handhold a 580, shoot it through the shoot-through diffusion panel and against some amazing shots like that, but that's like a, a kind of a bare minimum pack for us. Sometimes I don't even use a 7B and we'll just shoot with those, those cannons and you know i've always had those in my bag from shooting uh action stuff but reading uh strobus has gotten me kind of back into using those things again it's realizing the potential again for augmenting uh even a pro photo 7a setup you just need a little kick of light here or there you want to set it up quick and be light and fast it's a great way to do it well, there was one in, um, in your current work. There is a woman in red tights running through a forest of bamboo. Oh, yeah. It's it's a wonderful shot. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it was for, why you shot it, and how you shot it. That was, that's one of the only personal work pieces on my site that doesn't, didn't have an assignment at all. And it was, uh, I'd been wanting to just shoot some more running because I'm just, I really like some running shots. I think you know, shoot a lot of other sports, but running is a very big market that I, I like to get into, and I think it's cool, and I run, and it's something I wanted to try out. And we met that model. Actually, she sat down next to my assistant and I on a flight from L.A. to Kauai for another shoot. She sat down and was talking to us. It turns out we know the same people. Her best friend was working in our office as like an intern. Wow. So we arranged the shoot, and we're like, great, she'll be fine. She's like a yoga instructor, just phenomenal build. She's like, and she runs, and she knows what she's doing. She's coordinated and gorgeous, and it worked fine. And she's like, yeah, I'd love to start modeling and build some images up for my book. So we did it. Um, I live down in uh, San Diego, like North San Diego County, and we had those horrible fires uh, a couple months back that you know threatened our house, and we evacuated and all this stuff. And so I had an idea to do a shoot in a burned-out area to put it on my blog and get some awareness for the relief of the fire damage, people that lost their houses and to have people make donations and at least just kind of bring it to people's minds that, you know, people had lost a lot of homes and property and a lot of great natural terrain had been destroyed in that. So we went out and did that shot and it was so dark and gray and smoky and there's still like smoldering smoke and, uh, off the, the road where we were and um, we're coming back into town. I was like, you know, there's one other place I'd love to shoot. And it's this little botanical gardens right near my house called Quail Gardens. And I always bring my kids up there and we love it. And they let us shoot in there. Uh, so we're in this little bamboo forest and uh, shot that uh, 7B in the front with a beauty dish and two 580s, I think. Were the, or no, it was three 7Bs, actually. Yeah, we had three 7Bs on that one, all you know, kind of placed around, I guess, a triangle formation. She kind of ran through a couple different directions. And, you know, for reviewing the film, I the red tights and the green bamboo just pops so well. It chose to show. It's a great image. 
Yeah. You mentioned a beauty dish, and I'm just curious, do you, do you use the beauty dishes very often, and what are some of the things that are important to know about how to use them? I love it. I mean, I have I have one. I, I'll rent another one sometimes if I need to. I think it's just a good, small, durable way to get nice quality light on somebody. It's like, I don't think the, the light is necessarily too different from an umbrella or a softbox or an octobank. You know, I think there's there's a lot of people who spend a lot more time judging the light that comes out of something. And I mean, I use it in windy conditions. I use it when I need to kind of keep it in a small place. I'll usually throw a diffusion over it. I think sometimes it can be a little hard light. But yeah, it's a, I use it in conjunction with just bare reflectors with cinephile around it for the kind of trident of hard light sometimes. Yeah, I like them. Very cool. We don't get to talk to guys that use them a lot. I was just curious how what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, they're great. You know, they're great in the wind because they're small and they put out a ton of light. Throw a grid in there and tone down the spill quite a bit. And you can actually kind of... Uh, flare it off to the side a little bit so you're just shooting out of the corner of it and you get a little bit softer more askew light from it but they're uh, they're good and they're bomb proof like we've gotten crushed before and just flatten them back out to the way they're supposed to be nice <laughs> because photo reflectors that come out of a traveling case looking like a taco sometimes and just <laughs> hammer it back into shape and yeah. See, that's the kind of light accessory that Bill and I need because we found the big soft boxes do not work well in the wind. No, no, <laughs> no. no. Especially by the river. Twelve by silk stuff, and you get five guys on sandbags and ropes, and yeah, you know, just soft box that are BD dishes. That's a great idea, actually. That would help us in a lot of different situations. We'll have to do that before yeah. we go out again next time, Bill. <laughs> right. What about triggering all these different strobes that you have, especially when you're outdoors? Well, I guess power, how do you power your equipment when you're in these locations? And how do you trigger your light? I trigger with pocket wizards. Okay. And I have for years, I've just always, there's obviously, you know, you misfire a couple times or something's wrong or the batteries in one of the pocket wizards aren't working properly. And so I've started just using all rechargeable double A's in there and making sure everything's gassed up and ready to go. A lot of times little cords that go from the wizard to the pro photo packs or to a flash. You know, those things are pretty pretty tricky so they'll uh, they'll die on you sometimes. So I always have backups for that as well. And then I'll when I'm in the field and I'm really remote and with the travel light, I'll use battery power pro seven Bs and uh, and Canon flashes. Okay. Um, it's it's heavy. Like we usually have a spare battery for every seven B we have, and you know we'll go with uh, four seven Bs sometimes. We need to oh. use buy tube something like that. That sounds a little bit heavy. <laughs> yeah, uh, not as heavy as generators, but uh, this is true. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, generators are great too when you're not too far away from you know a grip truck or something like that. Uh, the last couple of shoots I've been on have been pretty generator heavy because I've been shooting a lot of light, but um. You know, I prefer not to just be burning gas, sitting there idling the whole time, and I don't really love noise. So if I can get away with battery power, I can. Then I do. You know, I don't know if it's because of the the subject matter that you shoot, but you, you remind me of when I'm talking to my friend, and he is always talking about his. Uh, we, we compare our camping tents and stuff, and he would say he'd look at my tent and he'd say, "Well, how are you going to get that thing into the middle of the woods?" And I'd say, "Well, why do I need to? The car's right here." Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean there's definitely i mean if you're going remote and you you know don't want to carry a bunch of stuff then you know you know you're just going lean and maybe you're you know just bringing your little point and shoot and you're going to do it that way or you're just going to be shooting natural light and you're only bringing a backpack full of gear 
But if you, you know, the closer you are to civilization, the crazier you can get with uh, grip and power. And <laughs> I mean, even shooting natural light can get pretty insane sometimes. If you need to bounce, just bounce a bunch of light or scrim a lot of people or a large area with a lot of grip out there. I think that's a task force this year, Bill, is, is lighting in some remote locations. Yeah, I'm up for it, man. Now, Embry, do you use a lot of assistance when you know ahead of time that you're going to be having that kind of a situation? Yeah, I mean, I'll uh, I'll definitely always have one with me when I can have like a bare minimum. Like I'll have one assistant that's also you know my my studio manager. I've got a full time guy that works for me that's really great at lighting, works like a slave, and also knows how to put together some invoices and estimates. And, answer phones and stuff like that. So we did a shoot recently where um, we went down to Mexico to shoot a swimsuit thing for uh, this Transworld Surf magazine. And uh, we had a ton of gear with us, couple seven Bs and ring flashes and strobes and BB dishes and octobanks and all this stuff. And I had one assistant and it was like, he's getting dollies here and there, running around and floating bridges out in the Yucatan Peninsula and stuff. Wow. And, you know, <laughs> He gets to, you know, go to Mexico and uh, see an amazing you know, place, watch uh, girls in bikinis play in the water and sand. So, you know, I don't feel bad about working him so hard, but uh, a tough life, it was probably is. like probably like a three assistant job in reality, but it, <laughs> it, it didn't allow for it. Um, so, I mean, if I won, you know, I, I obviously chip in and we, we all work really hard to get it done. You know, I, I just did a, a couple of shoots up in L.A. where we had a full digital kit and digital uh, assistant from Digital Fusion. And I had a couple of assistants come from a grip company called OTMFC that uh, shows up in a grip truck with generators and everything, you know, all the bells and whistles you need for a feature film. And it's, you know, you've got my first and a digital tech and two other assistants. And we've got, you know, a producer and PA and all that stuff. So it's like sometimes when it's a big client, big shoot, and there's just a lot of people and a lot of equipment that needs to move from location to location quickly, then I'll bring on extra hands for sure. I have another kind of question going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, because now we're talking about all this different equipment and how you have access to this amazing lighting equipment and grip. It wasn't always like that. And a lot of people ask, I really want to get into this stuff. What should I buy? How do I start? You seem to have made an awesome transition from natural light and just great images with that all the way up to now where you sometimes have anything you want at your fingertips. What would you advise somebody to, to kind of start with? And how to work their way? Where should they be headed? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know some of some of the equipment you need to shoot is dictated by client. If you're if you're shooting commercially or editorially, you know they're like, oh, I really want this poppy overlit, blah blah blah. Then you know you're gonna have to learn how to use that stuff. But if you don't use it all the time for yourself, then you can rent it. You know, and if they you know with digital photography prices and computers and digital backs and SLRs and all that stuff so expensive. It's like you have to be able to charge the client for that kind of equipment. And so if they're asking for crazy lighting package, that they're going to have to be able to pay for it too. So I would recommend that people focus primarily on crafting their image. You know, if they're shooting people, like it's the connection and the legitimacy of the relationship between you and your subject. And it's, it doesn't have to be the quality of equipment. I mean, there's tons of amazing shots taken on crappy cameras, on crappy film, poorly exposed, but it was there was something else magical about it that made it, made it work. And I think photography is like golf in a way that it, you know people get really hyped up on equipment and the new <laughs> thing is going to make it better. And, you know, that's why the golf industry rules and why photography companies rule and they just, keep killing it year after year and they come out with the same camera with 
one more button on it that you know, <laughs> right. nobody needs, and they got to sell the stuff. And they're preying on our insecurities and our inability to hit a golf ball. But uh, it's fun, and I love the gear, and I think it's cool, and it's it's good to have the right stuff and know how to use it. And the ability to know how to use it comes from owning it and shooting it all the time. But I would say, you know, if you're shooting medium format digital backs, like you already know what you need. You know, you have a format you're comfortable with. But if you're just getting going and starting out, I'd say, you know, pick a crew. You go Canon or Nikon. You know those companies are going to be there for you when they've got proven track records. You get all the lenses you want. You start out with the prosumer level cameras like uh, Canon 40D or 30D or the 5D is like amazing. Like there's so many people just in covers of magazines with those things right now that, and I'm sure Nikon, I just don't know the, the model numbers of the Nikons, but you know, the prosumer level stuff is so amazing right now. You shoot practically the exact same images. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just about getting quality glass, getting a, a decent camera, knowing how to craft the photo once you uh, process that raw and uh, maintaining that relationship with your subject. I really love the way you answered that. I think that that's a great way to keep perspective when all that stuff's being thrown at you in the magazines and stuff like that. I have kind of a follow-up question because I know just from reading some stuff that you've written on your blog, you, you even said in our interview, you haven't really been formally trained in photography. Right. Would, if you had to do that all over again, is that the same route you would take? Or if somebody was going to wanted to get into this career, how would you tell them to go about learning it? Just I would, uh, you know, I think you know, I never assisted, unfortunately, but I think assisting is probably the best education you can get in photography. But it's that double-edged sword that you're not going to get hired unless you know what you're doing. Right. And so there's, you know, I think workshops are invaluable. And I learned a, an amazing amount from the couple courses I took at Santa Fe workshops. And I was a busy professional photographer when I took the time to go to those courses. I just went to them to learn another facet of photography. It was kind of a, a cool experience in that, you know, you get to spend a week kind of just plugged into photographers and photography. And it's what you're thinking about. It's what you're doing. And I wasn't like that. You know, I was traveling with athletes and snowboarders and stuff like that. And, you know, that that's what it was about was getting from point A to point B. And took the time to kind of realize that it, it, it was a kind of a, an art we were crafting there at the, at the workshops. And it was a learning experience. And I've always been a big fan of learning from experience. So I think school is, well, photography schools aren't necessarily the way to go. I think if you know you want to be a photographer, start taking some workshops in those fields that you're interested in. And, you know, you'll learn in a week and you're not committed for a year or four years or something like that. And I think the combination of workshops and assisting would probably be a really good way to get an understanding of the world of photography because it's it's a business in a way. But, I mean, there's a lot of people that are amazing photographers that don't consider it a business at all. It's their, not their day job. It's their hobby or something they don't make any money off of. So it's kind of a, a subculture in itself is to be a photographer. Right. Well, before we wrap up, when you do your images and things like that, do you do a lot of your own post-production work or do you have a digital retoucher that you work with? I do everything myself. Nice. So I, uh, I don't consider myself an expert at all in Photoshop. Like, I haven't taken any formal training in it. I've had some assistants that uh, know way more than I do, and I pick up the crumbs that they leave behind while uh, whipping around on the computer screen. <laughs> and I know how to make them look exactly the way I want them to look, and I think that's... Uh, I keep learning, and you, 
you learn a little bit every time you you know talk to somebody else whether they a new CS3 comes out and you can do a certain thing when you convert in camera raw and oh yeah that's perfect I've been wanting to do that easier or something but it's uh, I don't I don't do a ton of uh, manipulation or anything in the, in post it's mostly just colors and saturations and uh, levels and a little bit of sharpening here and there sometimes I'll remove some a nasty bit of a telephone pole in the wrong place or something like that, but pretty easy going on the Photoshop. So you're using it more as like a jeweler screwdriver instead of like a sledgehammer? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's some, I'm trying to think of times that I've sledgehammered something, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not good enough to do it successfully. I think, you know, there are guys that can just wail away at a photo or take bits of 10 different photos and make something really cool, but that kind of goes back to my environment, location, fashion that I'm like, there's a reason I'm shooting in a place because I, I like to be able to place a person in the environment and make it work right there. Switch lenses, or I'll lay on the ground and make the right angle, or I'll climb up a tree, or I'll, I'll make it work because I can see it happen in front of me and I create it in camera. And I just, I just don't think my post-production skills are what they need to be to try and create something after the fact. Cool, Embry. I really want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us and share your insight. It's been an awesome opportunity just to kind of talk with you. Well, thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. You've got some amazing work and you've inspired us. So we appreciate that. And thanks for sharing your knowledge too. Yeah. Thank you guys for doing what you do and uh, keep it up, man. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other LightSource episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.